A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The lead singer of the pop group Pulp, Jarvis Cocker, has strenuously denied allegations that he attacked three children performing with Michael Jackson at last night's Brit Award ceremony. Jackson said he was sickened by the whole incident and Cocker ran onto the stage during his live performance. Oasis will begin their American tour without Liam Gallagher on vocals. Liam walked out on the band this week, 15 minutes before he was due to fly out to Chicago for Oasis' first concert. Liam also failed to perform at Oasis' MTV Unplugged show in London last Friday. The audience was told he had a sore throat. Within the last hour, there's been an explosion in Manchester city centre. It follows a security alert earlier this morning. Police say that bomb disposal experts were working on a vehicle when a device of some sort detonated. They say a coded warning had been received, but it's not clear from whom. So, mate, have you got any tickets for Euro 96? Do you know of anyone who's got any uh, Euro 96 tickets? Do you know any talent agencies have got I don't take liberties, even with myself. I know I prepare professionally for a football match, and I've always done that, and I always will do that. The only thing that does disappoint me is that the public pick up the paper, and they're going to believe all they're reading, it. and we're made out to have had uh, a three-week party here, you know, before each game. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the greatest games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller. With us, of course, is Jonathan Wilson. And our guest today is the comedian Mark Watson. Mark, pleasure to have you on the pod. Uh, nice to be here. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
And I guess it's weird not being able to see anyone, but that's just life these days, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's lockdown life, my friend, I'm afraid. <laughs> I started saying, nice to be here, and then I thought, I'm just in my house as usual. Yeah. Well, it's the, you're, in the, you're in the listener's ears, as, as Jonathan and I are. So in, in a sense, it's a three-pronged attack. We're in it together. We've um, got three to, up front here, basically. We should, <laughs> we should find a way through. Unlike the two teams that are in question today, we, we go back to Euro 96, Scotland nil, England 2 at Wembley Stadium on a very sunny day. Mark, why have you chosen this match? Yeah, the idea of playing three up front would have seemed insane in those days. Um, <laughs> I think um, the, I mean, this this match has got quite a bit of significance, uh, significance in my memory for a few reasons, really. I was um, 16 at the time, so I was a kind of Britpop teenager, mm. and it was a very specific time in uh, the kind of social history of this country, I suppose, where um, there was this kind of wave of optimism um, as everyone remembers, the cool Britannia thing, mm. uh, this weird, slightly heady atmosphere with all, all these bands. It's, general, it's hard to look back on it now and put it in perspective, but it was quite a ex- fun time to be growing up. Um, with, and on top of this, obviously England hadn't been at the World Cup uh, two years before and had done really badly at the Euros before that. So there was a um, sort of hunger for England to do well in something again. <laughs> um, and I think for me as well, I mean, I still follow England, of course, and watch um, watch these uh, tournaments. But there's something about uh, the rawness of supporting your country when you're that age. I think I'd, I'd had Italia '90 was a kind of seminal tournament for anyone mm. my sort of generation. It, it was um, the kind of emotional roller coaster of that, the Cameroon game, the penalty shootout, Gascoigne's tears. All that stuff was really kind of hardwired into us. Um, and then, as I say, there's been a drought of uh, England being good ever since then. So I, I remember feeling going into Euro '96. Plus, of course, it was in it, we were hosting it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I was, although I wasn't going to any games or anywhere near going to any games, I was um, basically I went into Euro '96 in a state of near unbelievable uh, anticipation. Um, <laughs> And as I say, I still do. I got very caught up in England's uh, World Cup bid in Russia. I still love international football, but there is something um, about those kind of first few big summer tournaments of your life that you never quite forget, I think. Mm. Um, However, the first game England started well and then uh, threw a lead away and drew with Switzerland, uh, I think it was. Yeah. And, well, it definitely was. And there was... um, I remember sort of sense that all this optimism for England was already dissipating and there was a slight <laughs> apprehension that we might have a sort of massively embarrassing uh, host nation going out in the first round situation. Yeah, um, I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right, Mark. I think with England, Jonathan, you know, after, as Mark says, World Cup 90, there was, you know, it was just semi-final, England came close. And then after that, you sort of had the, the Graham Taylor years of England, which was, which was very underwhelming and disappointing. So there was a lot on England when Terry Venables. There was there was a lot of, um, I suppose. What, what what would you say? People wanted Venables to pick England up when he took over in the mid nineties and do something with them. But it hadn't been brilliant. If you remember the Umbro Cup or whatever it was, that bespoke tournament, and some of the friendly matches England played going into Euro ninety six. Jonathan, England were very underwhelming. 
Yeah, they were. But I, I mean, I think it is difficult when you don't have qualifiers to play. And so because the games really don't matter, you know, you, you can play badly in an important qualifier, win 1-0, and all people care about is the fact you won 1-0. The friendlies, you know, England had some awful games. And we know what friendlies can be like. You never quite know what the opposition, you know, how, how, how much they care, whether they're putting out a strong team. There's always a tendency to experiment. And, of course, immediately before the tournament, there'd been that absolutely disastrous trip to, to China and, and Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, when you'd had the dentist's chair, uh, you'd had Gaza tipping pints over people, then the plane on the way back, the Cathay Pacific flight, when you know, Gaza was asleep and somebody slapped him awake and he thinks it's Alan Shearer, Alan Shearer says it's not. But anyway, he sort of went berserk and two TV screens got smashed and Dennis Wise got put in the overhead locker. And there's this enormous <laughs> embarrassment. At this point, and it doesn't is... sound like a, a team that's going to win trophy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but there is that sort of sense that when... Yeah, Venables, I think, dealt with it very well, that he said, we're not going to hang any of you out to dry. And the phrase he used was, we're taking collective responsibility. And I think there is a sense that teams can be be bonded by that. And I think you know, something similar had happened in in 1990 when there's all kinds of, of allegations um, about England players and a, a barmaid at the resort where they were staying. And, and sort of this sense of you have a siege mentality against the press. You're like, the press are all out for us. Yeah, yeah, there was also in, an, in certain contexts that um, can bring them together. Yeah, in 1990, there was massive negativity from the press going into that tournament, I remember as well, and and after the opening game with Ireland. And it, it, there was a sense, again, that the players uh, and Robson developed that sort of us-against-the-world mentality in the rest of that tournament. Um, but coming into Euro 96, as you say, there have been all these shenanigans in the Far East and but there have been very few actual matches to judge England by. So it is true that there was this kind of, um, as I remember it, there was this kind of heady optimism. Uh, and then England scored early in the opening game. That's and then right. even in the course of that 90 minutes, you could feel the optimism disintegrating and the country <laughs> like ready to turn on Venables at the drop yeah. of a hat. So and it I felt think it's precarious, I think, going into the Scotland yeah. game. Yeah. yeah, but I think the point you make about the general optimism of, of Cool Britannia and, you know, Danny Boyle and Damien Hurst, that sense of Britain sort of, you know, almost finding a, a new sense of self. And, and yeah, after 16 years of Conservative government, you know, a, a confidence that that government was coming to an end and, and you know, Labour suddenly looked very electable for the first time in a long time. Yeah. And I think even, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm more, I mean, I'm, I'm I, from what you were saying, I think I'm four years older than you. So I, I turned 20 right, uh, yeah. four weeks after this game. And it, it, I have to say, this summer is the best time I've ever had. It was, it's the best time <laughs> of my life, without question. Um, that this I'm glad game, you say that, because as I say, I do look back on it as a, a really like delirious summer, but sometimes you wonder if you're just mythologising your teenage years. <laughs> yeah, and I, 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 I mean, obviously, I think your, your age must, must be part of that. And, and, but you know, I, I was my first year at university. Uh, my final exam was on the afternoon of this game. Oh, uh, which is another story I'll, I'll come to. On the Saturday um, afternoon? On a Saturday. I had one in the morning and one in the afternoon. It was a nightmare. Um, I, know I might as well tell the story now, now we've got into it. But <laughs> yeah, it, it it's was, it's like it's, it's pretty much the, the only thing I've ever done in my life where I've looked vaguely cool. And, and even that word <laughs> feels difficult in my mouth. But it was... Um, <laughs> They, they were it's two... not easy to call yourself cool, is it, and come away no, with it's any not, credit? No, it's not. But um, there were two two Anglo-Saxon papers. Uh, so, I mean, coolness in, in the Anglo-Saxon context perhaps even harder. 
So yeah. in the morning, yes, you, you have to heavily caveat this coolness <laughs> <laughs> with the fact that you're doing Anglo-Saxon in the first place. So there was um, there was essays in the, in the morning. So there have been six exams, two each day for three days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So the, the essay paper in the morning, three hours, and the afternoon was a two-and-a-half-hour translation paper. There was a – I can't remember how many it was, but it was a number of texts, and you knew they'd choose, I don't know, half a dozen of these texts, and you had to translate four of them. So because I knew it was the afternoon of this game, and because in those days I had a really good memory, I just learned the translations off by heart. So I knew I'd be able to you know, get you know, get into the exam, look at the first Whichever line, passage yeah. it was, you'd be – I know that. Have it nailed on. Yeah. Just write it down. So I'd done this. It's pretty much the only paper I'd really kind of worked you know, really hard for. We went in. I think it started at 2.30. So the game was at 3 o'clock, and I think the exam started at 2.30. I can't imagine going into an exam room with this game looming. That would yeah, be awful. Because it's Oxford, we have to wear you know the ridiculous sub-fusk, you know, gown and mortarboard and bow tie and everything. And um, On a so, stifling so that, hot afternoon. On a stifling <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> Uh, so, so, you know, there I am in this exam, and, you know, they give the normal spiel before, which I have to say I've never really listened to before, but they, they said very specifically here, we will not let you out until an hour has passed, an hour of this two-and-a-half-hour paper. And I was sort of thinking, do they do they always say that? Or have they just said that this afternoon because they realise mm. that everybody's yeah. going to want to get, get off and watch like this game? Yeah. So, you know, opened the paper, brrr, rattled it off. It was finished in, like, 25 minutes. And so I'd better check it again. because also, And also, I'm probably not going to be able to go for 35 minutes. So check it through, 40 minutes gone. And I was like, I can't add anything to this. This is as good as it's going to get. So I think, right, well, I'll, I'll see if uh, they really are going to stop me when I walk out. So I thought I'll make a point of scraping my chair really noisily, and hopefully that will provoke other people also to leave. And sure enough, as I scrape my chair back, half a dozen other people, obviously in a similar boat, all stand up. <laughs> And we, and we leave. And, <laughs> Everyone and with England see, shirts under the sub. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you can see the invigilators looking at each other and obviously think, oh, just let them go. So go out in the street and sort of sprint back to college. You know, the gown sort of flowing behind me. Get into college. And I said to people, don't worry, I'll be back by half time. And, you know, I wasn't particularly confident myself I get back by half time. But this is about 20 minutes gone by the time I sort of burst into college. And I, I run through the quad to the, to the TV room. And the, the window was open. The outside window was open. And so without really thinking, I just sort of jumped through the window, landed on the ground, did a full forward roll next to the TV, and landed in a sitting position facing the TV, all in one movement. It I mean, is that by is like something a million from a miles <laughs> the best thing I've ever done. And as I sort of gain my sort of equilibrium, somebody just reaches over a bottle of lager and just puts it in my hand. And uh, yeah, that's it was like an advert. That's like, like what would happen on an advert for an aspirational young person's beer or something. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But that, that that is by a million miles the best thing I've ever done. But just generally that summer, because I then had, I don't know, a week or 10 days when I had nothing to do. And it wasn't like being an adult when you have nothing to do, when actually you still have loads of stuff to do. I had no concerns at all, no worries at all. So every day was just playing football in the sun, watching you know, 96, drinking, having a brilliant time. And, and yeah, There's nothing the, quite like the, uh, the summer of an international tournament is a, yeah. a wonderful time. I think those like long afternoons, you've you got your beer, there's those days when you get three day, three games in a day, all that sort of thing. Oh, it's glorious. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think that optimism kind of stretches further than that. You know, I, I think it was just an optimistic time for the world that, you know, the communism had come to an end. You, know, you had Francis Fukuyama in the end of history. Um, you know, you, you had, you have a Dayton peace. It's actually like history is still going now, isn't it? Unfortunately. <laughs> Sadly, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> he may have he may have gone a bit early with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have the Dayton Peace Accord the previous December, and of course the day of this game, which yes, seems an extraordinary thing now. You'd had the the bomb at the Arndale Centre in Manchester. Yeah, but even that, although obviously you know a, a terrible event, um, you know the, it, it felt very much that conflict was over. This was sort of the last sort of mm. flailing of the of the real militants. But actually, there was peace in Ireland as well. So I think it was. I think optimism exa- is exactly what what that summer was all about, and and the, the football tournament played into that perfectly from, from an England point of view. Yeah, and yet going into that Scotland game, you, you were aware that we were a defeat away from everything coming. Uh, you know, going to ashes, and on top of that, there was this this England Scotland business. Um, I was old enough, and I'm old enough to remember when you had things like the Rouse Cup and uh, the annual fixture between England and Scotland. But it hadn't happened. I don't think England had played them for quite a few years leading up to this game. Um, so, without having anything against any Scottish people, or even knowing any Scottish people, I had the sense this was basically a massive derby. And that it would be the end of the world uh, if we lost. I, I remember both me and my brother, who's younger, being like almost too nervous to eat breakfast that morning. <laughs> Mark, the, 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 the wait till three o'clock was absolutely unbearable. Yeah, well, I I, I grew up in Edinburgh in, in Scotland, of course, and I always my parents, my, all my family's English. Now I'd always supported Scotland and England, but up until a very distinct point going to school there, it became quite obvious that um, your average local wasn't up for me doing that, if you see what I mean. And, uh, and so, you know, if, 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 if it's put upon you that you are something uh, that they're not and you can't do that, blah, 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 the chances are you're not going to kind of kindly agree with them and go, okay, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'll, I'll go with you guys. So I then became a bit more of an England fan. And at this point, so I was 14 uh, when when the game happened, so very much in that sort of crap period at, at secondary school before you kind of go off into more GCSEs in England and standard grades in Scotland. And I, I mean, if you were nervous, I was petrified because if England had lost this game, <laughs> I think I would have I would have campaigned my my parents to to move down south. You know, yeah, you, you had a lot to lose. You had a lot. Oh my goodness, I, I really did. Yeah. Whereas I, I don't think at that point I knew a single Scottish person, but I did have, <laughs> uh, my dad had a lot of, um, my dad had a lot of old football annuals, yearbooks and things, Rothmans uh-huh. and so on from the 70s and 80s. And so I'd, I'd seen images of Scotland fans tearing up the goalposts at Wembley <laughs> and all this business. Um, so I was massively indignant about that on behalf of the England, uh, even though I wasn't alive at that point. So I had it, yeah. um, I had myself riled up for an enormous derby, uh, <laughs> Even though I, if we had lost, it wouldn't have been like I could have come into contact with any Scottish people. Um, yeah, I think um, I, I think one thing about uh, support like a Bristol City fan. I think if you if you support a, a team that's slightly down, lower mm. down the pecking order, um, you do sometimes get more intensity out of England games because you you have been starved of that those massive occasions. Um, you, when you hear people say oh, I don't care about England as much, it, it often is people who's, you know, they have five or six enormous club games in their season. Uh, well, Liverpool is a separate concern. I suppose there are certain places that see themselves as a bit distinct from England. But in general, this thing of um, don't really care about World Cups, don't really care about the Euros, feels to me that, like a sort of a big team's luxury. I think for me, as a supporting a 
mostly second, third tier club at that point. Um, the idea of England v Scotland felt like the major event of my life so far. <laughs> I know what you mean. All right, chaps, let's have a quick break and after which we'll talk about the match itself. Back in a second. So welcome to Wembley for England against Scotland. The oldest international fixture of them all. First played away back in November 1872. That one finished nil-nil. The hopes are that this one will have a few goals as well. Ooh, there was a lot of space on the far side. But Hanneman seems the man at the moment here now. Finds never with it. There's the cross coming in. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them, and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills, or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. He just says, how many holes does a straw have? Zero, one, or two. The internet can't figure it out, so I've done what any sane person would do. Ask the Luke and the Pete. Join me, Pete Donaldson, and Luke Moore for an unplanned half hour every Monday and Thursday as we talk about, well, anything really, from your emails to life's great mysteries to this guy. The noise you're going to hear sounds like a man being interrupted by a car. He isn't being interrupted by the car. He is making... Yes. The car sound. <laughs> How on earth is he doing that? 
How does he make that noise? Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beep, 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 beep. The Luke and Pete Show is a Stakhanov production. Now, let's see whether McAllister's nerve will hold. Goal. Welcome back to the Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. Now, Mark, you, you, you mentioned earlier that the, the game before this uh, was England versus Switzerland. And I think alluding to games before that in the Far East, England had beaten a Hong Kong 11 side 1-0, which uh, was, was hardly the ideal prep. They go into the tournament, the first game, you think, OK, this is what England need to host a tournament, to get themselves uh, going again. They had a decent squad of players. And it was a real damp squib after Alan Shearer had put England 1-0 up. Switzerland equalised. And to be honest, England probably, you know, fairly happy to get away with a point in the end. So going into the Scotland yeah. game, a lot going on. And Scotland had drawn 0-0 with the Netherlands before and played pretty well. And it was a decent Scotland side, Mark. Yeah, it's hard to... I mean you know, hard to believe in a way now because it's been so long since we've seen Scotland in a major tournament. But um, mm. in those days, they almost always were there. And yeah, I suppose it was McCoist, um, McAllister, Gary McAllister. There were enough good players to make you feel that England could uh, have some trouble. And of course, Scotland went in with a gigantic underdog thing. <laughs> that they, yeah. It was obvious that if they were to beat England at Wembley in this showpiece tournament for England, it would be... Uh, a massive kind of David and Goliath thing. And I, even at a distance, you could tell how much the Scots relished being mm. in that position. Um, so it, it did all feel very much like England were perhaps being set up for a humiliating fall. And um, <laughs> that Switzerland game, I remember it having this atmosphere which is familiar to, and which we've seen replicated in almost every opening England game of my lifetime. <laughs> where it starts well, uh, for about 30, 40 minutes, there's this bullishness, like, oh, we actually look like one of the best teams in this tournament. You concede an equaliser, you can see the weight of expectation crushing the players, mm-hmm. and you're lucky in the end to get um, to get to a draw. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> which I'm pretty, very much what I thought was going to happen in Russia, where we were playing brilliantly against Tunisia, then oh, yeah. got Absolutely. pegged back. Yeah. It looked like an yeah. archetypal England opening 1-1. <laughs> yeah, and when Stupid Kane scored, penalty, yeah. Stupid yeah. penalty, all of this. And that's why um, as soon as Kane scored very, very late on in that game, I, I, you know, I think I'd gone it into different. that thinking. It, it did feel different. I think I went into it thinking, it would be nice if England did well in this tournament, but, you know, uh, we've seen this all before. And um, by the end of that game, I found myself absolutely... Like, right out of my seat when Kane scored. And that was why. It was because in the back of your yeah. mind, you're thinking, this never happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always one all. That's right. <laughs> so, I mean, Jonathan, the, the, the Scotland team, you know, it's not a bad spine for a side. You know, Andy Gorham in goal, who I maintain is one of the best goalkeepers of his generation. I think down south, he's it's not really real. No, no, I, I would agree with was. that. Absolutely, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Calderwood and Hendry at the back. Um, you know, the midfield of Stuart McCall, Gary McAllister, John Collins. I mean, my goodness, you know, it's not too shabby. And, and Gordon Jury up front. I mean, it's a good Scotland team with with the. With it's the a really good side. And, you know, McCoy didn't even get a start. You know, it was it was yeah. Spencer and Jury who started, and McCoy came on really through the second half. So, no, it, it, it's it, when I, you know when I look back at the teams, it, it was sort of a, a slight shock at just how how good that Scottish team was. And you know, mm-hmm. Craig Brown's teams were always 
whatever the personnel were always well organized. Yeah, you knew it was. You knew they were going to be stubborn. You knew going into it that it was going to be an attritional one of those games where your stress levels never drop. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, the England team going into it weren't too bad. Now, Jonathan, am I right? Into, I mean, a part of me thinks it was it was a four four two to begin with, and obviously it was a change of half time. We'll get to is is that how you have it down? As, a, as a, sort of yeah, it was. I mean, there's there's some weird perceptions about that tournament. England played with the back three, which I mm. think is because David Platt played it right back um, against against Spain Germany. in the quarter final. So it does look like there's five midfielders there, but essentially they only played with the back three in the second half of this game. And even then, only uh, until the 85th minute when Sol Campbell came on for Jamie Redknapp, who'd been a substitute. But of course, the Starting other thing with the back three in those days would have been very unorthodox, I think. Yeah, quite. I mean, I, I think there was sort of a, uh, an affection for it because it had worked in in the World Cup in 1990, or you know, back five, I guess that, that was. But even even there, Bobby Robson repeatedly in games re- reverted to to a back four. You know, the the final few minutes against West Germany in, in the semi final, it was a back four again. So you know, there was a real suspicion about about not playing with a back four, but you know, the other thing before this game had been that after the Switzerland game, uh, Jamie Redknapp, Teddy Sheringham, and Sol Campbell had had all been you know photographed in Faces oh, nightclub yeah. in Gant Hill near Ilford, That's right. uh, drinking places. bottles of lager. <laughs> so you know, all that stuff about oh we've learned our lessons from the Cathay Pacific flight, and you know who knows maybe it was one one bottle of beer which doesn't really matter, but it looked really really bad. And there was a sense of, you know, these incorrigible players who just will not leave the booze alone. Exactly. Um, All, again, feeding into this idea that we were one defeat away from a, a total meltdown, basically. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I mean, I guess the posture from the Switzerland game was that Shearer had scored again. That he'd gone 21 yes. months, uh, 1,088 minutes without, without scoring for England. And, I mean, there was talk of, like, should Shearer be dropped, which in retrospect mm. looks, looks crazy. And mm. even in the build-up to the Scotland, yeah, to the, to the Scotland game, Arnold Muren uh, was there saying, "Oh, Teddy Sheringham will never make it in national football. He's too slow." There was all this yeah. swirling around, and and you did feel that uh, if if we started the game badly, you could already see it all like getting ready to collapse. Yeah, it was an extraordinary affair. This 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 game that the background the background to it as well, or the setting rather. Wembley Stadium, sunny afternoon, three o'clock kickoff. It felt like a cup final um, in the sense that you're familiar with all the players. It's, it's, a, it's an all sort of British affair, if you like. Um, and it was an international tournament because international tournaments previously, of course, and subsequently have been played on foreign soil um, very seldom. You know, obviously England played Wales in, in the Euros years later, but it, but it tends to be against foreign opposition. So, so this game... Um, you know, as I say, Wembley, three o'clock, sunny day, classic sort of FA Cup final feeling to it. But yet it, that, that's not what it was. Um, but as soon as the game started, I just remember the roar of the crowd and everyone was going in and it, and it, and it really felt like some sort of um, gladiatorial duel. And it was, I mean, the first half was quite forgettable, but the, the sense of occasion, Jonathan, was, was definitely there straight from the off. Yeah, but I mean, I think it was a very British occasion in every respect, but particularly in the sense of the football, which was pretty yeah. miserable at first. <laughs> I mean, if you think back to the game against Ireland in, in 1990, oh, and you had the famous yeah. Italian headline, no football, please, we're British. No football, please, we're British, yeah. 
which, which would have annoyed I mean, I guess, the Irish, to be fair. Yeah, it would have done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was um, a politically you, dodgy headline there. <laughs> you sort of, you sort of know where it was coming from. This, this idea that that you know British football is is very much about the two banks of four. It's yeah. it's about being pragmatic, playing in percentages. Uh, you're hitting long diagonals, and I think that's why Venables' uh, willingness to to switch at half time. I mean, imagine if that had gone wrong. Imagine if he yeah, switched I'd, to a back three and taken yeah. off Stuart Pearce, of all people, to take off mm. you know, the Lionheart himself. And if that had gone wrong, Venables was finished. On, or Redknapp, it, Redknapp. it was Redknapp came on for Redknapp him. Yeah, Redknapp was already playing. God, looking back, Redknapp that came was on for Pearce, yeah. substitution, really. Yeah, so they went, well, they went to a back three of, of Neville, Adams and Southgate with Anderton and McManaman as the, as the two wing-backs. As two, yeah, I don't think I would have wanted to tell Pierce at half-time that that was happening. <laughs> yeah, I think I do remember. That's my, my main memory of the afternoon, or at least one of them, is how desperate the football was in the first half, and this yeah. sense of depression starting to build. Um, yeah. That after all this, and you could feel the atmosphere coming off the TV set. There was it was a feverish kind of uh, intensity to it, and as you said, it was very, very much like a cup final. Um, but for someone like funny. me who. Yeah, it was, it, it was playing into Scotland's hands, really, because at halftime, I just remember the Scotland fans singing and dancing because they were loving this. Because you know, a, a point would have been okay for them because they'd have played the Dutch and then England at Wembley. They would have just had Switzerland left. It wasn't a bad Switzerland side, of course. They'd got a respectable point against England, but on paper, their two hardest games would have been over with, and they would have been in a good position to um, to, to qualify for the next round. Yeah. And England, I definitely remember at halftime. Everyone, yes. Having a cup of tea, thinking, as you say, you could see how it happened. The Scotland fans were, there'd barely been a, a shot on goal. It appeared to, to have nil-nil written all over it, or even worse, yeah. uh, one of these games uh-huh. you lose in the final 10 minutes through a deflection uh-huh. or something. But Jonathan, England was so much better, though, after the break. Yeah, I mean, immediately the, the switch to the, to the back three was, was vindicated. That I mean, even the fact that Gary Neville, although notionally playing on the right side of a back three, Got forward to get the cross in, oh, yeah. uh, but you know there was that extra width there. I, th- I think what had probably happened was that Jamie Redknapp had sort of dropped in almost as a sweeper, which had liberated Neville to go forward. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, he suddenly is on an overlap, and you see the Scottish defence is slow to get across, just because you know there's the extra man coming through midfield. He's got time to measure his cross. It's a you know a classic Gary Neville cross that it's you know there's no great whip on it, there's no great pace in it, but it's just put in the right area, and Shearer with a with a classic Shearer header to finish it. I can, can visualise it actually. this year ahead of very easily if I close my eyes. <laughs> and I, I remember the sense of uh, tension being released yeah. uh, was absolutely enormous. I think that... Uh, I've never that yearned was... so much for a goal as I had in that game. <laughs> I think, Mark, was was that the moment that... Because I, I suppose well, you could argue that this goal was maybe another false dawn as well in, in the sort of the microcosm. But when Shearer scored against Switzerland, I think everybody thought, ah, we're up and running, the tournament's away. And there's always that moment where any national side wants that, mo- that, 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 that goal or moment to think, right, we're up and running. And it felt... Yeah, there was this huge sense of we have liftoff now. But as yes. you say... Uh, as with so many times in England's history, it turned out to be an illusion <laughs> uh, because not too long after that, um, well, I suppose we did win the game in the end, but uh, this, this for the second game running, a penalty mm. came along. Yeah, 
But before the penalty, yeah, I mean, they, they, I mean, they've been um, they're showing Sheridan him when Gas got yeah. free kick. Gorman makes a fantastic save. He does low to his right, right to push it out. Should have put. But the then game safe. then Scotland do come back into it, and Seaman makes a really good save from a Gordon Jury header from a uh, across from Spencer, and suddenly, I don't know, around about seventy minutes, seventy five minutes, Scotland are in the ascendant, and you're thinking, oh. yeah, exactly. This is the Switzerland game all over again. It really was. And there was this age-old feeling that you get of England being 1-0 up and gradually digging their own grave. A thing which yeah, that's that, that many, many times. Going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, which England team, yeah. I mean, I guess they still do it, but it, it seems such a feature of mm-hmm. 80s and 90s England teams. It, it was certainly what happened Simon in that Ireland game, wasn't it? Yeah. The, 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 Simon Cooper has this great line that, this desire to reenact Mafeking at every stage. But it's <laughs> it's like sort of a glorious siege is our sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's what we understand Dunkirk or yeah, Mafeking or um, <laughs> whatever. I, yeah, Terry Butcher with a blood-soaked bandage, uh, Rome in 97. And this sort of, there's this belief that, that that's that's what courage and that's what football and that's what, what heart is all about. We love we're to batten cur- down the hatches, basically. <laughs> yeah, we're actually courage is playing passing football in the opposition's half. And that's actually yeah. how you win games. Yeah, and, and then if you if you are, are an England fan, there is that dread that you start to feel in your heart as you see the the one 0 lead uh, kind of swinging precariously in the breeze, and, and you, you see the players starting to that feeling of watching a team. I mean, it's not just an England thing. Anytime you're watching a team just getting deeper and deeper in the hope of clinging on, it's one of the most stressful things that a football fan can watch. I think. Yeah, I think England. England have seldom have we seen England teams sit on a one nil lead and do it well. And 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 as you say, that 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 when Teddy Sheringham has that header and Goran makes brilliant save, Scotland wake up as as you mentioned, and they were knocking on the door and they they were on top. And 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 it was Seaman saved. There was a couple of there was a there was a Seaman picked up a Gary Neville, what was deemed to be a pass back. And it's free kick in the box that that came to nothing, and it, you could you could set there was something happening, and then of course Jonathan Tony Adams dives in and, and fouls Gordon Jury to give away a penalty. I mean, the Adams's reaction there is absolutely brilliant, but yeah, it's, it's I mean it's a nice move from Scotland, you know, McAllister to McCall to Jury, and Jury's tripped by Adams, but he gets up and he sort of wipes his hands on the sides of his shorts, and, and sort of <laughs> I could remember not that. look more guilty, you know. He is, he is the absolute image of somebody who knows they've, they've committed the foul and is trying to pretend nothing's going on. But by doing that, they've somehow made it even more obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And so, in the Italian players of that era or Spanish, you know, had that uh, wagging the finger, massive gesture, like operatic gestures of despair. Someone like Adams, <laughs> his whole face and body language basically said, yeah, well, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the penalty against Switzerland was arguably slightly harsh in that the ball was driven into Pierce's hand from not very far away. This one is the most blatant penalty you could ever wish to see. No questions, no doubts. But Adam and, said uh, after. Pareto gives it. But Adam says a couple of few years later in an interview after, he still maintained that he got the ball. <laughs> he well, got a little bit of jury as well, though, to be fair. A fair bit of jury, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember being... Um, so we were watching this in the uh, living room on the ground floor of uh, our house and um, my mum was out in the garden, very little interest in football. Uh, me and my dad and my brother locked into this and when the penalty was awarded, I was f- so furious with Adams yeah. and so full of despair that I left the room and went out onto my parents' patio um, as if to say, I, 
I'm done with this, not watching this anymore. My mum looked up in alarm um, because I must have looked like sort of something from a Greek tragedy or something. I was already accepted the penalty was going to be scored. I was already basically, I'd already written it off. And um, she said, oh, no, if they scored, and I was just I remember shouting across the lawn, it's a penalty, it's a penalty. Um, and then my dad calmly called me back in. He had more faith in David Seaman than, than I did. <laughs> well, that was so. When I mentioned earlier about Shearer's header, you know, was that another sort of false dawn? You know, we, as you say, Mark, we thought we had lift off. Here was the moment where we thought, oh no, we, we, we're back down to earth again. And and of course, a combination of, of David Seaman and, and Yuri Geller, Jonathan, were, <laughs> were the heroes of, of the day for England. I forgot Geller bailed us out of that one. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't get enough credit often. Man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a twelfth man. <laughs> if if anybody listening doesn't know who Yuri Geller is or what we're talking about, just just keep it that way. I'd say, um, but 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 Jonathan Gary McAllister, such a good footballer, very trusty. When I think of McAllister taking penalties, I think of you know putting one top corner for Liverpool against Barcelona and so on. Always so reliable, and obviously it was you know it's a decent save. But looking back on it, even though obviously really wanting England to win, I felt sorry for McAllister, and I felt that that it didn't that penalty to sort of didn't represent him and his his skill set, if you if you like. Yeah, I mean, I think he, he, you know, he quite rightly had a reputation for being a very cool and calm player. Technically, obviously, very gifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, you know, if there was a criticism of him, it was that he lacked a little bit of pace. But there's nobody. I don't think of of the twenty two players on that pitch. I don't think there's anybody you'd rather have taking the penalty. Yeah. Uh, just because it, temperamentally, you know, he he he's the last man to who's going to bottle it. This was and part then the of my. Part of my despair, really. I, I remember seeing McAllister with the ball under his arm and sort of absolute dead-eyed. And, you know, sometimes you get a feeling, looking at a penalty taker, sort of gut instinct that he's going to miss it. You definitely didn't get that with McAllister. Yeah, but the ball just wobbles. Yuri just Geller makes the ball slightly. wobble. Yuri Geller just moves the ball fractionally <laughs> off the spot and it's enough to unsettle McAllister. <laughs> the ball and does move. If you no, it it definitely moves, yeah. It's really weird. That, that's not the bit I'm disputing. <laughs> we're just disputing exactly how much Geller had to do with it I suppose yeah I mean, it's one of those things you just can't prove so you know um, exactly. and, but the thing is it is a strange penalty for McAllister because he was very much mm. a sort of calmly placed the only thing I can think is that he his plan was to wait for Seaman to move and to smash it yeah. straight down the middle and then mm. if the ball moved slightly to the left which I think is the way it went he would slightly cut across it and so he, yeah, as it as it turned out, uh, hit it into Seaman's dive. But even then, there's a remarkable bit of luck that the ball hits Seaman mm. on the elbow. You know, he doesn't sort yeah. of get a palm to it. He's not able to direct yeah. it. Just hits his elbow. And, you know, half an inch higher, all... that's flicking off the elbow in the roof of the net, but it yeah. hits the elbow yeah, and yeah. just loops up and goes over the bar. It just all conspired in England's favour in that moment, basically. And, of course, because of what followed with Gascoigne, I'd still look back on that as one of the most sort of intense five-minute periods of football that I can remember. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's within a minute. England out Yeah, there the you round. go. That is how I remember it, but I wonder if I was misremembering well, how, how sudden it was. No, there was... Um, I think Scotland must have taken a corner. It must have been an offence from the corner. Colin uh, Hendra, I think, fouled somebody. I think it was Yeah, because on, on the on the highlights I, I saw, it's just it goes from a save to Seaman t- taking a free kick. 
And the ball's worked down the pitch in two or three passes inside to Gascoigne. Gascoigne lifts it over Colin Hendry's head. And it's one of those moments where as the ball drops, you have absolutely yeah. no doubt that ball's in the yeah. back of the net. There's something about his body shape, about the uh-huh. the the certainty of the skill that's gone before. If it just says absolute <laughs> yeah. dead certain goal. Yeah. And he buries it past Gorham and runs mm-hmm. off. Teddy Shagham's there <laughs> doing the dentist chair thing with the water bottle. And suddenly this this sort of great shame of, of Hong Kong and the Cathay Pacific flight is turned into into sort of this yeah. big joke and kind of mm. look look at this, look sort, at this of sort of new laddish culture that somehow is is cathartic and and yeah it, 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 exactly. somehow all, that's all redeemed and it just doesn't matter anymore. It's just lads being lads. That's right, and it's funny in that moment in those few minutes of football, you felt like that the seeds of the next game when they thrashed Holland and were all sown. It felt like that that moment with Gascoigne, yeah, the loop over Hendry. That was lift off, and that mad kind of celebration, which I didn't. I don't think I knew what was going on the dentist chair thing, but I definitely liked it. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, but I, I think the thing about that that goal as well is, when have you ever seen an England player score a goal like that? Yeah, oh, it was an extraordinary bit of skill, and Gascoigne had that in him, of course, in those days. He he, he had that weird, was it sort of half bleached hair or something? He, he was very distinctive looking. Yeah, um, he did. Yeah, he, he had that tendency to I mean everyone knew what Gascon was capable of basically even at this point in his career and I think all of us that had loved him in Italia 90 and we'd been on that emotional journey with him there was a kind of longing for Gaza to do exactly that sort of thing you knew he still was that guy deep down so I think that was part of it as well there wasn't anyone an England fan wanting to see do something special more than Gascoigne yeah, yeah but if you just you know, if you think back to Italia 90 how much fun that was the goals in it there was a you know a header from a free kick. There was Lineker bundling it in against uh, Ireland against West Germany. There's two penalties against Cameroon. There's a cross in the header against Cameroon. It's you only know, it, David Platt's goal that you can actually you know picture with any. And even that was just yeah. a free kick. It's a free kick. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a br- brilliant finish, but it's a free kick. No, like, yeah, the idea was, of going like going box to box like that basically, and the and the imagination of, and the confidence the and the audacity. Yeah, that's exactly the word. The audacity to, to flick it over a defender's head and then volley it in. Yeah, it was and just, I, as I just you say, that, not the sort of thing that England did. It wasn't the sort... You could almost not believe your eyes. <laughs> yeah, and I think because that worked, it then gives England the confidence to play as it did against the Dutch, and particularly that, that third goal against the Dutch, which, again, it, it you know, required a moment of confidence and imagination and audacity that England players... You know, that idea of the heavy shirt just stops you doing it. But that exactly. was the moment I, the heavy shirt came off. I, I think this is why it's such a special game for me in my memory, because... But by the end of it, you did feel as if England had gone through some sort of psychological barrier. And I remember coming home from school on the the following, whatever it was, Tuesday, Wednesday, for the Holland game. And you could sense at Wembley there was a sort of swagger about it. Although it was unbelievable to beat the Dutch in that manner, suddenly it didn't seem as unlikely that England could do stuff like that. Mm. And of course, by the end of the tournament, all psychological barriers were removed from the England football team forevermore. Um, That's right. uh, <laughs> and now we've got quite a few trophies in the bank now thanks to that one day <laughs> but the, yeah, you can't help wondering uh, you can't help thinking that if we had gone on to win the shootout against West Germany oh. uh, maybe we would have seen all future barriers removed maybe that could have been you know the whole tournament could have been a kind of mm-hmm. watermark in English football mm. yeah I mean, and course. I think the sense of false dawn not only did they lose the shootout to Germany but then immediately after that 
you know, we, we'd seen all these sort of you know, the great images of fans mingling in the stadium yeah. and you know the the, the, the sort of the reclamation of the flag as being something very positive and all that all that positive energy and then what happens after the penalty shootout defeat there's people out on the street smashing up german cars there's a russian student being stabbed because people think he think he's german and it turned out nothing had really changed at all that all this optimism was going to come to naught yeah yet again you saw how england the mood the national mood of england during the tournament is like a little bit schizophrenic it goes from massive euphoria to this terrible negativity which is directed outwards at foreigners mm-hmm. and it was, so it was very I, I don't feel that with the world cup in russia perhaps because we never expected to get anywhere near the semi-finals um i didn't feel that the reaction was quite as kind of grim as that this time mm-hmm. it feels as if but maybe that is just because it felt like sort of a bonus to go as far as they had mm. but it's funny to link the two tournaments because you know Gareth Southgate's obviously one common denominator there. The man who misses the penalty would be the man who would. I mean, if if England haven't gotten over the psychological barrier of penalty shootouts, they've 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 certainly ha- smashed a few holes and, and put a few dents in in the barrier. Yeah, with, with two winning one with Southgate wins. as manager is a great sort of storyline. <laughs> exactly, uh, and and uh, and going on in the UEFA Nations League, you know, if, if anyone's interested, but still, it's a penalty shootout win. But the other common denominator between those two tournaments, of course, was was the song. You had three lions was the song in Euro '96, and it, and and yes, you had different uh, versions of it in '98 and and so on. But really. World Cup 2018 was where it picked that song up again, and, and and there was that same kind of feeling, but but slightly different, and hopefully a bit more modern. Mark, if you if you see what I mean. Yeah, I think so. I, I think uh, you know England uh, England football fans are always having to get reality checks at various points. I think um, this is the, the World Cup just gone is the first one, or one of the first ones I can remember where it genuinely did feel as if the pressure was off a bit because. People just thought, well, uh, despite the enthusiasm for Southgate and despite what looked like quite an easy group, I still think people thought, um, I've seen this, I've seen enough of this, I've seen all this before. Hmm. Uh, The win over Colombia was another one of these national turning point moments um, where, again, you felt like uh, that is possible then. We can win shootouts. We are not bottlers. And uh, although, yet again, you could argue it was a false dawn because we did blow an enormous chance to get to the final. still nice to hope that something is a little bit different in the psyche of English football since mm. that summer. I think I think the feelings as well, when England went out at Euro 96, there was such despair. And looking back on that, it, it's the best chance in my generation that England have had to win a tournament because surely against Czech Republic with home support, you'd, you'd fancy England to do it. Whereas when they went out, in Russia, in the World Cup, then there was a there was a sense of, do you know what? Actually, there's hope for the future. Whereas I think in Euro '96, Jonathan, perhaps there was, I suppose, a sort of general despair of what had just happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think there was optimism for the future in that it felt like England found a new way of playing. It felt mm-hmm. like there was a new mood. A lot of those players were, were, were pretty young, and you had people like Robbie Fowler who's in the squad, who, who you know he got a handful of minutes, but essentially hadn't really been been, been used. Shearer was absolutely you know at his peak. It was, it was before the the injury slowed him down. Um, so you know, I think that there, there was optimism. I think to an extent that was justified in, in the tournoi, and even England's performances in, in France in '98, in although they end up going out in the last sixteen, they they played some good football in that tournament. Yeah. 
But you're right. There was a, an enormous sense of opportunity missed because it it wasn't a good Germany side. It was a, you know by German standards, that was a poor side. Uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right. The you know, surely against the Czech Republic, England would have had too much at Wembley. You know, sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. You'll never, never SMA the capacity of England to mess it up, but, then, but you, you're right. They never had a chance. Last night I watched the um, Diego Maradona documentary with my son, mm-hmm. who's 10, and um, watching West Germany and Argentina line up for that final, even 30 years on, I was still a little bit furious that that wasn't uh, us against Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> for the exact same reason. Who knows what would have happened, especially with the sort of Maradona's talismanic thing. But again, it was such a poor Argentina side by then. Both of those semi-final defeats of the 90s, you can't help looking back with a heavy sense of what if. Mm. Whereas, yeah, with this I, know, one, I, I mean, you're right. 1990, yeah. 1990 seemed to be set up for, for England's redemption for 86. Exactly. And uh, it just wasn't quite to be. Whereas, at least in Russia, I, th- I think we still would have lost to France, <laughs> probably. Well, I think I think that's what what kind of gives me peace of mind. I, th- I have I've never been sure of. Uh, of, of a result in all my life in that France, once they got to the final in Russia, they were going to win it. I think they were the best team. And in 1990, looking back, I think West Germany were probably the best side in that tournament. And I don't really have sort of too many complaints because England had, had actually probably had their best game in the knockouts against West Germany. But Euro 96, I just think, yeah, that that was such a such an opportunity uh, for England um, but of course, as, as we've all sort of said and, and alluded to, that that's what it is being an England fan, Mark. You know, it's it is about the what ifs and, and so on. It is, and some, sometimes you think that's, I mean, not exactly part of the joy of it, but there is, you know, it's a part of what makes uh, being an England fan sort of special experience is that uh, sense of uh, ourselves as either eternal underdogs or the people that always blow it or it gives you a sort of underdog identity at least i sometimes wonder what it'd be like if you were my age and german and you'd already seen maybe three major trophy wins in your lifetime it's hard to imagine being in that mentality and of course it would be nice but apart it's a little bit like um as a bristol city fan i sometimes look at fans of manchester city or really any respectable size club and think what is it like having seen all those trophies had all those moments of glory of course I'd love to have it but um, is, there is something about staying hungry I suppose that's what I'm saying yeah I, I, th- I think the pressure if you win all the time must be awful uh, yeah and I, as I remember I've I mentioned this before on this podcast but when, when Sunderland won the 73 FA Cup final uh, which I was you know I wasn't born at that stage but my dad was there and he was uh, 30 uh, 35 he'd have been and he said that you know he'd spent 20 minutes whistling for the end of the game and the final whistle blows, and his first reaction wasn't ecstasy, it wasn't joy, it was sadness, because he knew he'd never be that good again. That's funny, isn't uh, it? And that, that encompasses, that epitomises the problem of being a football fan, basically. <laughs> the very yeah, we've moments... still got to come, that's, that's for good news. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be fair, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident I haven't had my, this is the best it'll ever be, at least I bloody hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, Mark, it's been a it's been a pleasure talking to you about Euro '96 and, and a little bit of England in general um, as well. I mean, of course, we might have been talking about uh, Euro 2020 had uh, all this business not happened, but we certainly hope that, that England can can host and do something special at the Euros in 2021 or whenever they may be. But but thank you very much, Mark, for, for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. 
It's a pleasure. And I hope one day someone else will do a podcast about how we blew it at Euro 21. <laughs> yeah, I've absolutely no doubt. Um, for more stories uh, like this, of course, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Um, but until next week, thanks, Jonathan. Cheers, thank you. And we'll see you uh, very, very soon, everybody. Cheers. Oh, here's Gascoigne. Gascoigne, he can finish it here. This was a Stakhanov production. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.